There you go. <laughs> are back Canucks hour here on Sportsnet 650 bonus second hour of the show which is going to be the case all this week uh, and we'll also have some more news about the future of the show which I think will be very exciting coming up at some point in the near future as well Canucks hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment your Kubota all-star team avenuemachinery.ca or douglaslakeequipment.com we are coming to you live from the Kintech studio Kintech footwear and orthotics Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We threw it out to you. Uh, we're talking, Drance, it's September. It is, uh, I think, is this the last day of summer, first day of fall? It's something like that. Anyways, it's September. Training camp is around the corner. And we're talking line combinations. I love it. You love it. The listeners love it. You threw it out, the question to me and the listeners. What's the line combination that you could see this week at training camp in Whistler or preseason that Bruce Boudreaux could throw out there that would make you ultimately the most excited for the Canucks season to come? And lots of submissions coming in because, as I said, who doesn't love talking line combinations here uh, on the eve of training camp? I'll give you my answer. I was thinking about it over the course of uh, of the break there. So really in-depth thought, obviously. Uh, but and, and here's the thing. It's really easy to come up with one or two awesome, exciting lines. The third one then tends to be a bit of a hodgepodge. Maybe you're not sold on their role. So I haven't thought of the domino effects elsewhere uh, in the lineup if this is the case. But the line that I want to see that would make me the most excited is Pedersen in the middle, Mikheyev on one wing, and Brock Besser on the other wing. And the reason I want to see that, I alluded to it earlier in our discussion last segment. You came up with the same trio as me, by the way. There you go. And we did not plan that. <laughs> no, we didn't. We did I, not plan in fact, that. I purposely didn't tell you anything. Because the reason I want to see it is I want to see Elias Patterson challenged to be an elite two-way player. And I think that trio gives him the best opportunity because it's two of the, the wingers that you can really depend on and rely on defensively in Brock Besser and Ilya Mikheyev. But you can also imagine how that line can be very productive offensively, right? With Ilya McKay's speed and forechecking ability, I think Brock Besser is going to have a really good year for this team uh, for a variety of reasons. I think there's Bro some chemistry Brock Besser there is Patterson. massively underrated, by the way. Brock Besser, Brock Besser is... Brock Besser is excellent. And, you know, not only do I think he's going to have a huge season, like, I think the way we view him in the pecking order of this group and the way even the organization views him in the pecking order of this group will look extremely different in 12 months. Like, I, the idea that he's not a core piece for this club is ridiculous to me. Uh, I think there's going to be no doubt within the next 12 to 18 months. And so that's the group that I look at. And, and you kind of laid out the criteria for it, right? One that can more than hold their own in tough minutes, but also produce offensively. And it's not a guarantee, but I just, just going through all of the different permutations, that's the group to me where you can rely on all of them defensively. You you can see a way where Patterson's intelligence and, and defensive ability can help tilt the ice. And then obviously you've got high-end offensive players and Patterson and Besser and a guy who can complement those types of players in Ilya Mikheyev. So I, I like it for a much simpler reason. I just think it's the highest upside roll of the dice you can come up with. Like, I actually worry that Mikhaev would not be a, a great compliment for Pedersen and Besser because Pedersen and Besser have such chemistry from an East-West mm -hmm. perspective traditionally. And I think Mikhaev, a little bit like Pugliarvi in Edmonton when he plays with McDavid and company, like I think the line will work, but I also think I think Mikhaev might be a little wasteful in terms of how that line generates. Like 
I do think that Besser and Pedersen together work best, and we've seen it with JT Miller, with another guy who can, sure, play that F1 role, right, who can get in and retrieve pucks and be that heavy press, but also can bring a fair bit to the game in terms of east-west passing and in terms of finishing efficiency, and I just don't think that's Ilya Mikhaev's game. But I'd still pick that as the line that I most want to see because the upside of, well, if it clicks, right? Like yes. If the Canucks are right and Mikhaev is another offensive gear that he's begun to tap into and that will continue to evolve in Vancouver in more premium minutes, uh, if Elias Pettersson is able to handle toughs uh, the way that, you know, his skill set implies he should be able to, right? With the, with the way that his anticipation and overall hockey sense plays. And if Brock Besser is, you know, uh, uh, without a bounce 25 to 30 goal score every year, uh, then, yeah, I mean, that's that's the highest upside trio you could put together. And it lets you do something like a third line built around Horvat and Pearson, mm-hmm. right? You know, what about a second line? an offensive second line built around Miller that maybe even had Kuzmenko on the left and Garland on the right. So you've got your best playmaker with two right-handed shooters, right? Both of whom can create in their own right. And you've got a clear defined role for that line, which is ultra offensive. We're going to give you the best offensive minutes. We're going to ease your burden uh, defensively. We're going to let you go to, go to town. And then you've got a Pearson Horvat, Pod Colson, go play in, go play in straight lines, produce and just be, wearing down everybody i mean can you imagine like that to me is the highest upside alignment i want to hear the suggestions from the yeah so from the readers one now, that's come in a couple of times and there's there's a there's some themes involved uh in these we're getting a lot of pod colson right and that's very understandable because there's a lot of excitement about facility pod colson for again fair and understandable reasons so this one's come in a couple of times very similar that's uh, what we had. This is from Sergio in Vancouver. I see it from Dan in Fort St. John as well. I'm sure there's others I'm missing. But Patterson and Besser, but you sub out Pod Colson uh, in place of Ilya Mikheyev on that line. And I understand very, very much the attraction to that because kind of what you're banking on there is that Vasily Pod Colson is ready to be one of those unicorn, really effective 20-year-old or 21-year-old two-way players, right? And you can see the upside and then you have... Uh, you know, this kind of vision of three potentially core players growing together and playing together and producing. I get it. And, and I can also see how Vasily Podkolzin would really comp- compliment Pedersen and Besser. The only reason I would go to Mikheyev is because he's such such a, a more established defensive player that the coaching staff is going to trust. And ultimately, I want... The reason I put that line together is I want Elias Pedersen to be in a position to be deployed like a true number one center. And that's the line that gives yep. gives him the option to do that. I'm not sure what Colson does because of the trust from the coaching staff. Well, and it, just because it's going to take him some time. Like, I like of the course. idea. I think Pod Colson's going to be a heavy press in the top six in time. I just, you know, development isn't linear. And in a player like, for, in a player like Pod Colson's case, we saw him come into the league and, you know, he wasn't just a healthy scratch in the first little bit of the season. He, he needed to be, right? Like, we're talking about a guy who less than 12 months ago was defending with his back to mm-hmm. the puck carrier in the, defen- in the defensive end, right? Like, the way that he learned the NHL game and the heaviness with which he played in the last 20 games suggests a level of progress that's, like, exponential, right? <laughs> a parabola <laughs> pointing, pointing inexorably upward. But that we know that's not how it goes, right? I mean, just like... Niels Hoaglander in his second season, just like Elias Pettersson in his third season, just like Brock Besser some of the times. I mean, we've seen it happen with Brock Besser. We've seen it happen with Bo Horvat. Like, there's been so many. We saw it happen with Quinn Hughes in his second oh, yeah. season. Like, we've been through, 
recently, so many young players coming into the league and just absolutely crushing it and then seeing exactly what we mean. Like, you know, development isn't always linear has become a truism, a cliche in sports talk, or at least in like sort of the new age of sports talk where you get into the nitty gritty the way we do. But we've seen it. Like, we, you have proof positive with some of the best players in the league. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how much Mike and the Mad Dog were trotting out to develop into the <laughs> No. <laughs> Fair enough. But, uh, <laughs> but your point is well taken. You know, no, you're right. Uh, we, in, in, in certain spheres, it has become a, a, a cliche. If, if, if Vasily Podkolzin is a two-way driver at the age of 20, right, then the Canucks have a star player on their hands. I mean, that is a star, star player, right? It would be great. I'm not writing it out. I see him having that in him. I don't think it's fair to have that level of expectation of him at the age of 20 going into his second NHL season. Yeah, and as I said, a theme of a lot of the submissions we're getting is Vasily Podkolzin in spotlight roles in some way. This one came in from uh, Jay from Delta, who says Podkolzin with Miller and Kuzmenko. And that's an interesting one. And again, I'm, I'm into that. There are no shortage. There are no shortage of trios that'll make you go, oh, okay, what, I can see that. I, I like, like that. What I like about that, though, because that one doesn't necessarily conflict with ours, right? What I like about yep, that alignment, true. what I like about that alignment is that you'd have Miller in between two wingers on their weak sides. So right. Miller would always have on both sides of the wing, on the rush anyway, a one-time option. And the way that Miller has begun to, as a centerman, as a puck carrier, you know how he slows? Like, he stops skating, basically. And because his passing has become such a threat, he almost has this, like, Patrick Kane impact now, where, you know, granted, it's not quite that dramatic, and Patrick Kane did it because he'd freeze guys. Like, he'd literally hypnotize guys just with his puck handling. But JT Miller will stop, and everyone starts, like, taking their eyes off him. That's when he's most dangerous. Right. And if you have him with on the rush, two one time options at all times on either side, that creates a level of unpredictability from an offensive standpoint that I think could be a ton of fun. Uh, I would enjoy that enormously. Yeah, that's an interesting one. And again, I like it because you're giving Pod Coles in a ton of offensive opportunities, right? Which is maybe right. more appropriate for his usage than at this age than, uh, well, than some I, of the other options. I just think middle six usage, like yeah. at the end of the day, playing matchup minutes is so difficult. And the Canucks have, you know, so few wingers that I suspect they're going to trust coming into the season. And that's for a reason. It's just a cruel league. I just don't think you want to put a young guy in a spot like that, particularly because, and, and we saw this with Bo Horvat in his development when he got thrown to the wolves because Brandon Sutter would be hurt or, or what have you. Right. And then what happens in tough minutes is you might not even be playing poorly, but you'll go through a 15 game stretch and it's like, you have three points. Yeah. You know and what I'm it's saying? just, just demoralized. And, and if, yeah, it's demoral. And you start the season like that, right? If you're a veteran and you start the season like that, you've been through it, you know the points will come. You know what? Like you, you're yeah. less likely to, but if it's Pod Colson and you put him in that spot and he's just absolutely spending all his energy chasing the best players in the world around and you get 20 games into the season and he's got three points and everyone's like, sophomore slump. And it's like, maybe he's even playing well. I just don't think that's a fair spot to put to, it. To make a cross sport comparison, when, uh, when the Canadians were low You a know, still, I love my cross. Sport comparison. When the Canadians were low A, the Jays would send all of their best pitching prospects here, but none of their best hitting prospects because it's a brutally tough park to hit in at Matt right. Bailey, right? And you could be doing all of the same things right as a hitter, but you're not going to hit many home runs. You're going to get out a lot here. 
And that's really demoralizing, even if your process is exactly the same. Conversely, for pitchers, it's like, hey, wow, my ERA is really low. I must be doing something right. You want to put your guys in the best position to succeed, even if they're actually playing well in, in that tough environment. It can still be really tough for them. Do we have more suggestions, or should I scroll this? Yeah, we do. This? No, no, no. Okay. We got, we got go. some other ones that I want. I wanted to read this one because uh, it's unsigned, but I, I want to read it just specifically because it was the only submission to include Tanner Pearson uh, in, in the line that would most excite them, which... Hey, I, I love me some Tanner Pearson, but sometimes the inbox, not so much. So this one was very similar to ours. Mikhaev, Pedersen, but then you have Tanner Pearson uh, in there instead of Bar- Brock Besser. And the, the texter says, I love it as a, a stud, tough minutes line, but not sure that it maximizes PD's offense. And yeah, that's the reason I would have put Besser there instead of Pearson. It, it, it has a chance to be both. Uh, another one similar to ours, Pod Colson, Elias Pettersson, and Ilya Mikheyev. That's from Ryan. He says that line has the potential to be a dominant 200-foot line. Uh, one more that came in here, Mikheyev, Miller, and Besser. So that's an interesting one because you've got the two of the reliable defensive forwards, uh, wingers in the mix in Mikheyev and Besser, but you sub out JT Miller there. I, I don't know that, you know, given what we've heard from Patrick Alvin about limiting JT Miller's minutes just a little bit, and hey, that's easier said than done when you've signed a, a player like him to a big money extension. I would like to see the focus be on, okay, you're going to be our offensive guy, JT Miller, and we're going to find a way to get those tough minutes out of Bo Horvat and Elias Pettersson, and you don't have to worry about that as much, right? That's what I would like to see from JT Miller's usage, and I think if you put McKayev and Besser with them, again, I have no doubt that could be a very effective line but I think then it becomes you're asking JT Miller by default almost to to play more of a defensive role. Yeah, 100% you are. And I just don't know that he's – well, look, JT Miller is going to be fine. The thing about putting him in a more defensive role is he's still just going to produce and play his game, right? And so I don't have a problem with that because I think that'll mostly work. I think you'll at least come out even – um, and we saw at the end of last year, you know, if JT Miller is making plays the way that he did as a centerman toward the end of last year, and that continues, even with some expected, like, individual point percentage regression and some power play shooting percentage regression stuff, like, you know, Alex Chason was scoring multiple goals a game, and Vasily Podkolzin looked like a first-liner, mm-hmm. and, you, I mean, you were able to put him with anyone and they'd produce, and so I'm okay with you know, Miller's going to figure out how to use guys. Like, Miller's just going to figure out how to use guys and be effective. I I actually think the concern that I'd have is more about would that line actually be good enough defensively to yes. warrant the hit that Miller could take because he has less efficient finishers on his uh, wings. Yeah, That sort of would be my question there. Uh, we did get a couple uh, coming in. One said, uh, okay, fine. I prefer Jamie's and Drancer's uh, option to mine. And another one said, damn, I do like that one. So we won some people over with the uh, Let's go. the Patterson McKay of Besser suggestion nice. there. Which Drancer. we 100% did not It was independent. Ball. It was independent. Now, uh, can I scroll this now? Please, please do. We were talking about putting people in a position to succeed, right? Yeah. And one thing I thought about a lot at Young Stars, and I want to I want to talk about Young Stars because I, I spent the last. I want to get your perspective. Yeah, on Young Stars. I spent the last here, weekend, yeah. and you know me, I'm a completist, right? Like mm-hmm. I watched all six games. I left early from the Canucks final game just because I wanted to make sure that I got to hope before sundown. Um, you know, it was a long weekend. I didn't want to uh, grind away at that point, and you know, I, I was pretty sure that the Oilers were going to turn the tide there, but. One thing that I thought was interesting was every game before the game, I would count out the number of U21 players that each team had on their roster. 
And the older team won four of six. Sure. Right? The exceptions were the Winnipeg Jets beat the Calgary Flames while being outshot two to one in the final game. So I count that as a win, obviously, because it was, but it wasn't a decisive win. Calgary was far better. And the other one was the Edmonton Oilers, who have four first-round picks in their lineup, uh, you know, three of whom are qualify as sub-21 uh, versus a Vancouver Canucks team where the highest draft pick was um, a 19-year-old who played in the Belarusians' second league right. until last season. So no surprises for me. The more mature team won. Now, the Canucks had a great showing, and a big part of that was the performance of some of this, like, class of AHL guys, including um, Schmeeman on the back end, who was really good on the power play. I really liked his game. I think he's going to soak up a ton of minutes down in Abbotsford this year. Chase Waters, who's fascinating. Like, I think he's a really interesting young player there and might be a guy who they consider converting onto an NHL deal. Certainly, he would be, in my view, uh, he would warrant an ELC, like an NHL contract, ahead of some of the guys that the Canucks have in the system on NHL contracts. And then uh, Tristan Nielsen, who was kind of like a, a, a breakout candidate. A breakout star of the Pentecost tournament, tournament to a certain extent. 100% he was. He was great. And, you know, has the speed and has the pest game and has just enough hands that you can see how he could carve out an NHL path in time. Um one thing I liked about what the Canucks, one thing I like about what the Canucks are doing is that all of these guys look to me like guys who could ultimately contend for sort of low end NHL jobs or depth NHL jobs in time. And they're beginning to develop, to, to develop them with in house, like in, in their own system. But also, you go to Penticton and you have these guys that you can put your other prospects with. You know, like Klimovich began to just absolutely crush opponents once they changed up their lines and put him with. Waters and Nielsen, Nielsen, and they started keeping it really simple. And Klimovich was o- the only guy sort of going about the ice freelancing, right? He knew exactly where Waters and Nielsen would be. They're going to play in straight lines. They're both 22. And, you know, that worked. Like, that worked really well. Uh, I liked how they sort of built out those lines. Now, you also have to be, like, one thing I had some people in my mentions saying over the course of the weekend was, oh, look, Trance. The Canucks prospect system has more depth than you said, has more quality than you said. Well, first of all, uh, Klimovich has kind of opened my eyes a little bit. There's, uh, I, have a, I have a much higher opinion of him coming out of that tournament than I did beforehand. He was the best teenager on the ice in Penticton, not close. And there's other first-round picks who were there in that age range. It's just that the way that his playmaking played the way that his attacking instincts are like clearly high end. There's some serious issues with his game from a positional standpoint, but of course there are. Yeah. The guy never basically played like he came up through the Belarusian second division. Uh, yeah. he, he basically didn't play structured competitive North American hockey until last yeah. year. You're, you're telling me all his details aren't buttoned down <laughs> coming right. from the Belarusian <laughs> second division? They're not just not buttoned down. They're, they, they can yeah. be absent in stretches. Um, but the hockey sense that he demonstrated offensively as a playmaker in particular, um, you know, he's a fascinating player development project. He's a ways away. If he can carve out like a consistent middle six role and produce 0.5 points per game this season, I will consider that a massive step forward, right? The Canucks have their work cut out to make Klimovich into someone who's going to challenge to be an NHL roster or even a real prospect, like a real, a real asset. But he's a really interesting project at this point, and, and you can see it. This was the first time that I'd seen it, right? Because I watched some of Abbotsford last year, and I just I didn't see it. I just didn't understand. I was like, this guy's 
tools are there, but there's no toolbox. And now I could sort of begin to see yeah. the formation of an attacking toolbox. There's still a ton of work to do, but I was I was wildly impressed. Um, but that doesn't change my view of, like, one thing to keep in mind is when you put out a line of Neil Zaman, Neil Zaman, Linus Carlson, and Archdeep Baines, right? All of whom had their moments, right? I, I think I was probably most impressed with Baines of that trio. Linus Carlson's got some serious pace issues that I'd heard about but hadn't seen before. Um, and Neil Zaman looked like a guy who probably, it probably didn't do him a service to be in that tournament just because it's so scrambly. Mm-hmm. And his sort of details are are far more professional. I, I, I'm really curious to see him this next week. I suspect he'll look better on the ice with NHL players than he did in that particular environment. But you put that line together, right? They have an older, they are older in terms of their average age than would be a line of Hoaglander, Pedersen, and Podkolzin. <laughs> right? Like, that's the thing to keep in mind, uh-huh. right? What would Pedersen, Hoaglander, and Podkolzin have done at that tournament? Picked their teeth with of everybody, course. right? Yeah. And so that's just like a thing to keep in mind. What I liked about how the Canucks built their prospect team was they now have this sort of uh, tertiary layer of players that could come in and support guys like Klamovich, their prospect pieces, and have a, a fair bit of success with a slightly older entry at the tournament. And I think that makes a ton of sense in terms of making sure that guys like Klamovich, guys like Linus Carlson, guys like Arshdeep Baines are going to come into their camp in Whistler and be like, hey, we played well. Like, we played really well. We took mm-hmm. over games late. We all, you know, we're all feeling good about ourselves. Like, they'll go into camp with a leg up, a leg up. And I think that's well worth doing. And part of what the Canucks were able to do in accomplishing that is do it with guys who also, you know, are developing themselves into potential depth options down the line and sort of allowing them to go a little bit younger in Abbotsford this year. I like all of that. But it should not change your view of what the Canucks prospect system is, right? Like, it should not alter that. There's a lot of age advantages built in to the way that the Canucks approach that, which, which by the way, I like. I think that's a, that's a good way of doing it. It's just that you know, the vast majority of Vancouver's most interesting prospects weren't even there. Yeah. So why would that change your view of the strength of the system Well, and overall? also, you can address, and I think the team has addressed, the depth end of the prospect pool, right? I don't think there's any question that they have added to the depth. It's just, it's at the lower end, the lower upside end. That's still valuable. That can still be really valuable down the road, but it's not the kind of thing that's going to, you know, shoot you up the athletics prospect uh, pipeline. Ratings. I would argue that that's not depth. <laughs> depth is that you have All to right. have a lot of guys like... A depth prospect to me it doesn't give you a depth of prospects. It's not about number of guys. It's about number of guys who you can look at and project to be NHL level. And more than that, number of guys who are actual assets. Guys yeah, you yeah, could yeah. trade for positive returns or, or who would really help you improve. That's sort of where the Canucks are absent guys, right? There's really two and a half guys who sort of match that description in the Canucks system at the moment. You know, when you contrast that with the buying power of a team that's like very much on Vancouver's level going into the season. In fact, Vegas likes their odds a lot better in the LA Kings, right? Like the LA Kings decide anytime a player comes available, do we win the bidding for him or not? Whereas Vancouver is going to struggle to make those types of bids, um, you know, for a variety of reasons, cap space also plays a role. That's sort of what I'm talking about when I talk about the Canucks having a thin system. But again, you can be, happy that they've added interesting pieces or whatever at the bottom end, right? Mm-hmm. While also recognizing where they stand in the overall pecking sure. order. And that and I think that's the kind of thing that there's not real there's no like quick fix cheat cheat no, system. No, no. You know, there's there was not. this one weird trick to be to get the tenth best prospect pipeline. It's like, well you kind of gotta pick more often than they have in the first and second round and <laughs> nail those draft picks and yeah. the crew extra draft picks. 
that's how you do it. So, totally. yeah, they can add, you know, a lot of interesting players, and who knows, maybe one of them will, will hit down the road. It's not going to give you those blue chip guys. Well, and, and that's also, just to come back to this, that's what I'm saying more than anything. Like, it didn't change my assessment of the depth of talent in the prospect pipeline, but you can see some of the thought that's going into this as a result of Abbotsford moving and as a result of, uh, you know, some of what new management's begun to put in place with, you know, the Twins and Samuelson and Higgins and mm-hmm. that group of, of player development personnel. And they've actually got a really interesting project on their hands in Daniela Klimovich, who I think has far more upside than I'd understood, but also a ton of work to to, to go in terms of closing ground and, and really being um, a guy who has a shot at being a, a high-value asset or an NHL player. Uh, I like the approach, but the talent pool still has a long way to go. And Perfect. I think that's the distinction I'm trying to make here. Before, uh, before we go to break, have I been saying, I've been saying Klimovich. You're saying Klimovich. Have I been saying it wrong? Ah, Klimovich sounds right. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll figure it out. We'll yeah. get somebody to yeah, update I'll, I'll ask him now I that just... he can speak English like, <laughs> and did an interview. And hey, by the way, I love that too. For a guy who's got a lot of um, sort of maturity gaps, right, uh, awareness gaps, has to do some of the boring work to improve his game. The fact that he's having three English classes a, a week with his wife mm-hmm. and, and was comfortable doing a full English language interview uh, for a media scrum with no interpreter, like those are the sorts of signs you want to see from a guy whose, you know, specific deficits at the moment are very much like, you know, study up young man, right? Yeah. He's, clear, he's clearly doing that from a, an acclimatizing to North America standpoint. There's still some work to do away from the puck. He's, uh, he's just organization wide. One of the most fascinating players to watch for me this year, Uh-oh. just because the range of outcomes is so, so vast. Honestly, maybe league wide. There's not a lot of projects. There's not a lot of player development projects with this sort of profile where, where you've got a six foot two guy with incredible puck control. Like, you know, top five in the entire organization, including the NHL roster puck control. Um, and, you know, such a such a glaring absence of defensive details and positioning positional awareness, um, you know, and, and a bit of a temper that he's going to have to learn to control, right, in terms of playing on that edge too. So, uh, you know, there's not a lot of guys with this sort of, um, like, skill, raw rawness profile in the league. So, yeah, seeing what yeah. he can do, if he can just be an everyday top six, or sorry, an everyday middle six guy, um, you know, flirt with 20 goals as a 19-year-old in the AHL, that would be a massive success and would and would really position him to do the sorts of things that you expect from a 20-year-old in the AHL, which is, you know, close to point per game, 20-plus, mm-hmm. you know, and, and if he can do that, right, over the next two years, the Canucks will have a really high-end prospect on their hands. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. we got to take a quick break. One final segment coming up. I want to get into uh, the Bo Horvat situation a little bit. We'll continue to read your text as well. Again, 650-650. It is Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. Final segment of Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. The Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca or douglaslakeequipment.com. Uh, Canucks preseason coverage on Sportsnet 650 is brought to you by Black and Lee. Suiting up has never been easier with suits and tuxedos in a modern wide range of colors, styles, and fits. Blackandlee.com. And of course, we are coming to you live from the Kin Tech Studio. Final segment of the show here. Uh, we'll turn you over to the People's Show at 1 o'clock. And I'm actually a little surprised it's taken us uh, 90 plus minutes uh, in our first show back here, Drancer, 
uh, to get into this. Obviously, we've had a lot of talk uh, to talk about, but one of the interesting, certainly off the ice, uh, I guess you could say, situations percolating around the Canucks right now is Bo Horvat's contract status. And it, it does feel a little bit like we just transferred a lot of the uh, speculation and conversation from the JT Miller contract to Bo does, Horvat. Does it feel that way? Well, I was going to say, though, I don't think so. I think there's a... Um, there's a I don't know about appetite, but I think there's a material difference. Some people almost I want to push it that way is not the right way of saying it, but there was almost an expectation that, okay, well, now we're going to flip to talking about uh, Bo Horvat that way. I'm having a much harder time getting invested in the sense of drama than I did with JT Miller, right? Because it's, at the end of the well, day, because there is less, I'm, I have a really hard time imagining that this is headed to a separation. I, I just think there is less. Like, I just think there is less drama. Um, this negotiation has unfolded slowly, but, you know, amicably at first, and then I'm sure there's frustration that the deal hasn't been done yet, but I don't, I don't, I don't suspect that there's the same level of drama anyway, partly because I don't think there's the same level of speculation generally. I'm, that could change over the course of this week, but, you know, I'd be surprised if there's, a significant level of bad feeling. And, and partly, too, you know, the Canucks have been through this, organizationally speaking, not this management group, but with Pat Morris in the past, right? The Jacob Markstrom negotiations, and I think the Canucks played hardball there mm -hmm. to a far greater extent than, you know, even the reports of them playing hardball with Bo Horvat would imply. Um, and Markstrom, you know, he shut down talks for the season, but they still revisited things, you know, midseason. Uh, they still had a chance to get that done prior to the bubble. They still went to the wire in those talks. Um, you know, Markstrom wanted to stay. Until the very last minute, Markstrom wanted to stay. It's just that the Canucks didn't get in the ballpark. They didn't even get in the ballpark to to make it a hard decision for him. Um, you know, that's sort of Pat Morris's style, right? Like, it might be full contact behind the scenes, but I'd be surprised if it's full contact in public or that it spills out to that extent. Bo Horvat pointedly didn't throw any elbows when he met the media after that captain's practice. I'd be surprised if he does at any point. Mm -hmm. And we'll sort of see where this goes. So, you know, I think there's a material difference. I do think, however, that the Canucks, having done Miller, right, and they moved aggressively on Besser to close him right before the arbitration deadline. They moved aggressively on Miller to get that done when they did late August, early September. I do think having Miller locked up and, and feeling comfortable in the Pedersen-Miller one-two punch may delay or certainly change the urgency with which the Canucks, and I've been saying this for a couple weeks, with which the Canucks decide to aggressively move yeah. to close on Bo Horvat. To this point, the two sides clearly haven't been able to get to a point where there's where there's comfort. Um, the market, meanwhile, has evolved a little bit over the course of the summer. Uh, you know, some of Horvat's comparables will include Ryan Strom and... Vincent Trocek, who came in very affordably, like very affordably. Lower than I would have guessed for either of them. And same with Nazem Kadri. Value. Same yeah. with Nazem Kadri, right? The, the flat cap comes for everybody. And so, you know, does the reality of unrestricted free agency change the balance of leverage here? Maybe a bit, maybe a little bit. But, you know, I'd be surprised if, I'd be surprised if it completely changed the dynamic of the early conversations where there seemed to be something of an accord. Yeah. And so, you know, we'll see where this one goes, but I'd be I'd be surprised if there was real bad feeling on either side and and all of that said, obviously details on this one are being kept close to the vest on 
on all ends. And and I'd expect that'll continue. That tends to be Pat Morris's style. Yeah, the thing for me is all of the reasons that I've been not even I wouldn't even it's gone it's beyond optimism. I've almost just considered it a done deal, which was probably too strong, but I've never even really allowed myself to start, you know, thinking about okay, what would happen? What would they how would they move him? How would it look like? Because there's so many reasons why he would stay here, why he would want to stay here, why why they would want to keep him around. All of those reasons still exist, which is why it's hard for me to get in, invested in the drama. I guess the two changes would be, as you said, some of the things that happened in the free agent market, and then the JT Miller signing, obviously. And, you know, I think some fans have maybe had this perception that it's, you know, okay, you can only keep one. You can only keep one of Miller or Horvat. I don't think the team has ever bought into that. I don't think that's ever no. been how they've looked at it. But it has to change your calculation a little bit, right? That you're not now staring at two potentially key centers who are going to be free agents after this year, right? You only have one to deal with. And I think at a certain level, it probably does change their calculation because it has to, just the reality that your team is different. Uh, and, and, you know, we've heard, we've also heard Patrick Alvin talk about the importance of the salary cap picture long-term, you know, in your conversation with him, a willingness to trade even a high-profile pending UFA. But, of course, we heard those same things about JT Miller, and then they ended up signing him. Right? <laughs> and that's kind of where I still expect this to go. It's like, yeah, they probably would be really reluctant to lose Bo Horvat for nothing. That doesn't mean they're going to trade him. That means they're probably going to sign him to an extension at some point here. Uh, right. And you can see that. Yeah, I mean, we'll see exactly where... We'll see exactly where this goes. You know, again, I think... There's a chance that this lingers for a bit. I won't be stunned, I don't think, if the Canucks open the season without an extension done. I obviously won't be stunned to see it move, um, but I'd be surprised to see it move before camp opens mm-hmm. at this point, right? I mean, we're just getting late. And so uh, so we'll see where this goes. But, I, you know, more than anything, I don't expect this to be a major distraction as camp opens. I just think the tenor is different in the market. Um, and I think the style... And the appetite for, you know, elbows being thrown publicly is very different, both in terms of Newport's usual modus operandi and and in terms of Bo's tolerance for that as well, right? Like yeah. his personal tolerance for that. I, I just think this is going to be one that mostly plays out uh, well out of well, the public. Field. How much public-facing drama has Bo Horvat been involved in in his Canucks tenure? Really? Like he's very, very good. And when he criticized Don Cherry. Sure. Um... He's very good. And at, I'd say that's about it. At not having it spill over. As opposed to JT Miller. Yes. Which is <laughs> which is hard to do. No, no, I'm like this. No, but I'm I'm serious. Like, you know, when the Canucks wanted to be critical, like the players and the traveling party wanted to be critical of the return to play timeline. Mm-hmm. It was JT Miller who who went and lit the match, right? I mean, it's just a it's just a personality difference, like a comfort level with that love with that sort of um sort of thing. Uh, you know, I, I expect that to govern things here too yeah and i think it only really becomes a distraction if it's you know post christmas and there start you start to be looking ahead to the trade deadline right and then you start to be maybe there's who knows where, where the team is in the standings all of that when those factors start to to come into play maybe it becomes a distraction but just you know in training camp i don't see any reason for it to be a distraction uh in that environment 650 650 is the dunbar dunbar lumber text line keep your thoughts coming in here canucks hour on sportsnet 650 Uh, i wanted to uh to get this in quickly uh our colleague colleague ian mcintyre sportsnet's triple threat reporting in recent days uh the canucks have some interest in ethan bear we touched on it really briefly earlier in the show but i did just want to uh, dive into it a little bit get your thoughts 
on the idea. I don't think it's any surprise that the Canucks would have interest in a player like Ethan Bear. We all know about the organizational need on the right side. I think he would represent a low-risk, low-cost option. Hey, I'm all for that. Go to take as many of those uh, types of bets as you can on guys who can play on the right side. I guess my question is, how much upside is there actually with Ethan Bear, or is he that kind of classic third pairing guy who's going to look really good on a third pairing, but it gets dicey when you move him farther up the lineup? I like Ethan Bear as a roll of the dice a lot, like a lot. I'm actually a big Ethan Bear fan as a general rule. I really like the player. I think he'd be a great fit as yeah sure he's probably a third pair guy but i think there's the potential to do more mm-hmm. he was definitely a third pair guy in carolina um but could he be a tough minutes righty considering his age considering what he's accomplished already considering the extremely auspicious underlying numbers uh the overall skill set the two-way intelligence the the combination of speed and physical edge um decent first pass you know i have a lot of time for this player Here's the issue that I think you bump into or, or the concern that I'd have about the news that the Canucks are considering him. One is that the Carolina Hurricanes are sharps, mm-hmm. right? They're not after veteran presence, right? Like, you know, abuse yourself of the fake trades you've invented since the iMac tweet <laughs> that involve, you know, guys like Tanner Pearson, right? Or guys like Michael Furland or, you know, like the Michael Furland's contract, like, disabuse yourself of that right the hurricanes are making a good trade for them if they make a trade at all and the cost is going to be prohibitive and in bear's case you know we're talking about a player who was probably 50 50 to even be tendered a qualifying offer to be totally honest it was with someone you. a surprise that he was yeah. i think I, I was kind of expecting him not to be 100 perfectly honest this mid-range tier of player right tends not to get qualifying offers and you know what one interesting thing happened Ethan Bear's qualifying offer was for $2.4 million. What's his cap at today? 2.2. What does that tell you, right? That tells you that there was probably, probably, this is not based on reporting. This is, this is me reading the tea leaves of the fact that as I looked at Ethan Bear's cap-friendly page, I noticed a discrepancy between his, what he should have been qualified at and his ultimate settlement on a one-year deal. A 200K discrepancy. That's strongly suggestive of a player and a team that are working together, right, to potentially carve out a new opportunity for a guy, right? That, that's strongly suggestive of that. And if that's the case, like, you have to understand that what the, you know, Hurricanes are most likely doing. Again, this is a fact pattern take, not based on, in, on reporting. This is, this is me reading the situation from 30,000 feet. They almost certainly qualified a guy because he was a right-handed defenseman and they thought the market would bear something good for a right-handed defenseman from a team in mm-hmm. need and a team that wanted to gamble on a relatively affordable guy who's played major NHL minutes to this point in his career and is still under the age of 25. And so you have to be very circumspect about acquiring a player from a team like that in a situation like this, right? You don't want to get taken in. You don't want to overpay in this circumstance and the Canucks need to send money out. And if you're sending money out, you know, it's got to be attached to value. And that entire proposition makes me nervous, right? Like this entire proposition makes me nervous. This feels like a, you know, a sharp with a plan. And, and I, and look, you can win a deal against a sharp with a plan because it's sports and bad luck happens. But I just think you have to tread very cautiously in terms of, in terms of how you approach this. One last thing we saw Lindquist move for a ton. Yeah. 
again, if the Hurricanes qualified Ethan Bear with this in mind, they must just be like, you know, absolutely salivating and rubbing their hands together. But right-handed defenseman in that 24 to 26 age range, make no mistake. The Canucks will, and I've said this before, leave no stone unturned. Just because they haven't added to their defense core to this point does not mean they're not exploring absolutely every single option to do so. I guarantee it, and and I won't be shocked either if they take a long look at the waiver wire over Canadian Thanksgiving, that final sort of stretch of days before the opening night roster deadline kicks in before the season begins, um, you know, in the event that they can't find a trade they like in the meantime. The one thing I'll say about the risk of overpaying or kind of falling in love with with Ethan Barrett, as you said, maybe getting taken a little bit by the Carolina Hurricanes because of you know, all of the different uh, attributes that he has that makes him valuable on the market. One thing we have seen from Patrick Alvin, and it's uh, it's frustrated fans at certain points, but is a willingness to be extremely patient, right? And not say, oh, we have to go out and get that right-handed defenseman, right? We have to have that by training camp. So we'll just pay up. We'll, we'll buck up and we'll meet this team's asking price and, and, we'll, and we'll give up a future asset that we don't want to uh, because we need to have that right-handed defenseman there. Now, Maybe it's because the options that were on the table weren't enticing enough. Maybe with Ethan Bear, they're willing to sing a different tune. But my initial read on this is, as you said, they're they're going to look every in every nook and cranny around the NHL to try to find those right-handed defensemen. But they're also going to be judicious about how they spend assets to get them, right? Which is why the waiver wire would be so enticing. I don't see them, you know, if Carolina's trying to play hardball, that strikes me as the kind of thing that might be a non-starter uh, for Patrick Alvey and the Canucks front office because we have seen them really stick to their guns on valuation and price thus far in their in their tenure. Yeah, and we'll get to uh, we'll get to some other things here, but you know I, I do suspect that with 48 hours left before training camp opens, the Canucks are very likely, you know, are very unlikely to add at this juncture. Right? We've we've seen a lot of news over the last 48 hours, PTOs, some last minute things like that. I, I'd be pretty surprised at this point. Uh, and I'm not just saying that because the hour's late. Mm-hmm. Like, I'd be surprised if the Canucks aren't set with with where they're at. Um, so if we're going to see extra business from Alvin and Rutherford, right, there remains sort of two possibilities. One is the trade market, and one is the waiver market. Um, my conversation with him, I sort of asked PTO's waiver or a trade, and the one that Alvin seemed to lean toward, subconsciously, what have you, was discussing sort of the possibility the waivers. waivers. So, yeah. uh, you know, I think they'll be patient, obviously. <laughs> that's I think Alvin's very patient. I think Alvin's happy to wait. And so we'll see sort of how this unfolds. But I do think adding another defender before the start of the season is something you should expect. It's just about what it costs and what exact route they take to address that shortfall, that obvious issue that this team, you know, goes into this season. Hey, patience with. has been the name of the game for Patrick Alvin. We only got a couple minutes left on this before, before we turn things over. So we'll try to keep this brief, but just when we're talking about whether it's adding to the defense or remaking the team generally, do you think there's any chance realistically that we see movement on that in season this year? Or is that all kind of next summer and even beyond down the road? You know what I mean? Or is there, because it's just so hard it, to make moves in yeah, season. I think you could see stuff. A hundred percent. I think I think it's going to take one thing we haven't seen is the team under Rutherford's watch at any point like hit a pro- prolonged divot. It's a good point. It's a good point. You know, like what happens when this team loses four in a row and and you know Gunslinger Rutherford is at the helm, right? What what changes then? Um, you know, I I also think 
You know, one of the things that the organization really believed internally when they were deciding to take the risk on Miller was that they felt that you don't get into cap issues because you roll the dice on a really, really good player, a top-of-the-lineup guy like Miller. You get into cap issues because you have a lot of middle-class contracts hanging about. And so, you know, I mean, I think the way that this works, they're going to have to waive Dickinson, but I would still expect him to be in the opening night lineup because, you know, you're never going to be able to move him if he's not if one he's not of playing. your 12. Yeah. He, you know, you need to rebuild that value. If there's any if there's any hope of rebuilding the value, he's got to be on the ice to do it. Jim Rutherford both acquired and traded Tanner Pearson within a one-month stretch. Now, I think Tanner Pearson is very widely, uh, very highly thought of internally. Obviously, he should be. He's a really good player. But he'd also have some value because he's a really good player, right? Yeah. Because he's won a cup, because he's been there, done that, because he can complement skilled players, because he's so reliable defensively and so good along the wall. Um, you know, that would be another guy that I sort of look for. And, and look, I think they see real potential in Tucker Pullman. But if he stays healthy, you know, the way that they need to clear cap space, if he stays healthy and performs well, you know, those are the types of cap clearing moves that I think the club will view as realistic um, and that I think there'd be an appetite to make internally. Canucks Hour is back. Thank you to everyone for listening, for texting in. We're back at this time again tomorrow, 11 to 1, and then 10 to 12 in Whistler, live for training camp on Thursday and Friday. The People's Show is up next. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.